0: Am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) I want you to think of the gall that it took for Cain to spit those words out at God when he knowing what he had done to his brother. If you're not familiar, that line comes to us early in Genesis chapter 4. In the sped-up biblical timeline, no sooner are we introduced to Cain and Abel, the first of Adam and Eve's sons, Then we hear murderous Cain sarcastically uttering those words, am I my brother's keeper, knowing full well that he had just murdered his brother. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's Cain's reply to the Lord when he asks with concern, where is your brother? It's a telling line that neither the Lord nor Cain ever really answer. Am I my brother's keeper? It just hangs in the air there in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, with the Lord quickly asking in verse 10, Cain, what have you done? He knows what he's done. Adam and Eve were the first ones to believe Satan's lie that they could live their life apart from God, but Cain was the first to believe another lie from the evil one, that he could live his life detached or without those surrounding him and caring for him. We have since glorified, not Cain, but we have glorified the idea of the lone wolf in American culture, right? We love the John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, he can do it by himself kind of guy. I don't mean that we've glorified Cain necessarily, but we have this picture of a rugged individual. That's the one that's depicted in almost every single piece of literature and film that our country makes and our longing to be self-sufficient and stand on our own two feet. Too often, we have separated ourselves from the love and care of others around us, and we have essentially said, am I my brother's keeper? Am I really responsible for another adult human being? I know some of us get bored and bothered by a lot of statistics, but the numbers don't lie. This year, 63% of Americans claim to be Christians, but only 31% answer that they attend church regularly. 63% 63% of Americans claim to be Christians, and only 31% answer that they attend church regularly. That is troublesome to me for a number of reasons. Number one, nowhere in Scripture do you ever find the picture of a Christian who does not have a relationship with the church. Read the Bible. You will not find a standalone Clint Eastwood Christian. Secondly, even solid Christians who are themselves faithful to the church, they've begun believing that a churchless Christian is an actual thing. And they'll say, well, it's not best, but I mean, who am I to say that they're not really a Christian? Go back to my first point of concern that nowhere in scripture do you ever find a Christian who does not have a relationship with the local church. I challenge you on that. Prove me wrong. You've got the picture of strained relationships between Christians and the church. You can look at Paul and Barnabas. You can look at Galatians, the whole church in Galatia a picture of infighting and arguing. You can see the church's abandonment of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Okay, you can pretty much just see the strain between Paul and the local church all throughout the New Testament. But he has a relationship with the church. You'll find the picture you will not find the picture of the rugged individual in the Bible. And some of you will say, who were in your D6 Sunday school class this morning, you say, not true, Corey. We learned about John the Baptist. That was a rugged individual, let me tell you. Camel's hair, leather girdle around, he ate honey and locust. I'll have one of those for lunch, thank you. Not the other. With his camel hair and and locust diet, he was certainly an individual, but even John surrounded himself with disciples. Even John sought out a relationship and answers from Jesus. He He may have been rugged and he may have been unique, but John the Baptist was not the lone wolf that we have made him out to be. No one in Scripture is. Elijah tried to be, he thought he was, but the Lord scolded him for it, telling him that he had 7,000 other prophets just like him who had not bowed down their knee to Baal. He thought, I'm the only one who's standing for truth. I'm the only one doing anything. And God said, are you kidding me, Elijah? There are 7,000 others just like you. You're not alone. Just look at our pristine example of Jesus. If anyone ever, could have been the lone wolf, the rugged individual who didn't need a church community, it would have been Jesus, do you agree? I think so, yet look at how he lived. He surrounded himself with disciples, he often shared meals with people, and he never missed a Sabbath worship in the local synagogue, whether he was preaching or not. True, he had moments of solitude, but those were the exception and not the rule. In fact, so much of his teaching centered on how we ought to live amongst each other, forgiving wrongs, restoring relationships, never opting for a life of Christian monasticism where it's just me, just my family, and no one else. He never taught that, not once. If you need any more proof, just look at how Jesus died. Even on the cross, even on the cross, He is caring for the community around him. The criminal who's dying beside him longed to have a relationship with him. So what does Jesus do? He welcomes him with literal open arms into paradise, into the kingdom of God. Mary is standing sobbing at his feet. So as the good son that he is, he makes arrangements for his friend John to care for her. And then in an act of selfless love and devotion, Jesus spent some of his final breaths doing what he would spend the rest of eternity doing, and that is making intercession on our behalf. He looks up to heaven and he begs the Father saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. His whole life, teaching and death, was focused on the community around him. And the apostles followed suit. They did the exact same thing. In almost every single epistle in the New Testament, we have the author of Scripture confessing his love, not just for the Lord, but for his church too. And you can read universal and local church into that. In fact, Paul often writes about his longing to be with particular churches, particularly the local churches in Rome and Philippi. We don't have time to get into a word study of the word that's used here for how he longs for them. But suffice it to say that it means yearnings. It means a loving desire. It's a love letter from husband to wife. That is how Paul treats the local church. He longs and yearns to be with them. We simply do not have that kind of desire for the congregation in our modern churches today. We have become too civilized, too slick, too corporate, too standoffish in our church congregations. Those of you who know me well, you know that I detest mission statements and purpose statements and vision statements. I hate them. I have served on too many boards where we have wasted too many hours trying to come up with a catchy one-liner that will henceforth tell us what we ought to do with our life. I hate them. Can't stand them. Not saying they're wrong or immoral, just don't invite me to that party if that's what you're going to be doing. Not your guy. I don't really even like the one-word life statements that are so popular among intentional people today. But for the past couple of months, I've been meeting with another pastor every week, and we've spent intentional time in praying through our separate congregations. We've pulled out the directories. We've pulled out the roles. Your families have been prayed for column by column in our church directory. And there has been one word that keeps coming to the forefront of our mind throughout these extended prayer times for your families. And that is the word Community. Community. I mourned with an older pastor a few weeks ago. He was assessing, doing a little bit of diagnostics, self-diagnostics, I guess, of his own now dying church. That's what he called it. I didn't. He recalled the shift in his congregation as the majority of them began commuting into church, attending a service or two a week, and then living apart from each other the rest of the time. It used to not be that way he said, and he recalled seasons of vibrant community life with each other, and as this older, wiser, loving man who has spent his entire life in this congregation, as he spoke, I had this overwhelming sense of God, do not let this be new hope story. Do not let this be New Hope's story where people will check in for a couple of hours a week and then live detached from a community of Christians throughout the rest of the week. I believe it is our greatest need as a congregation. I think our doctrine is solid. We study the Bible a lot here at New Hope. If you want a Bible study group, there is a Bible study group for you. I have full confidence in our teaching and music ministries. The Lord has blessed us with several new believers this past year as we personally share our faith. We are investing well in the next generation while ministering to the needs of older and other generations. We are outwardly focused, intentionally giving to other ministries outside of our own local church. But the faults of the pastor are oftentimes showing up most evidently in, its con- in his congregation that he leads. And I believe one of my greatest shortcomings concerns community. I will confess my faults one to the whole this morning. Sometimes I get so laser focused on gotta write a sermon, gotta write a sermon, got to write a sermon, got to teach a class, got to study, that I neglect the community of saints that the Lord has blessed me with. And I'm just telling you that if I struggle with that, there is a greater likelihood that you struggle with that as well. We are responsible For each other. I'm going to say that multiple times throughout the sermon, so you better just go ahead and settle in. We are responsible for each other. Let it sink in. We'll come back to it in a little bit in the text. But you and I are personally really responsible for the spiritual well-being of each other. Our life of faith is so interconnected that if you are not growing, then the person beside you on the pew is lacking. And if that person beside you on the pew is lacking, you are battling that same sin with them. This is how the church is always talked about in God's word. We are so interconnected. That our sanctification is tied one to another to where if you're not growing, I am not growing. That flies in the face of American individualism and our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, doesn't it? And I'm telling you, we have gotten it wrong. Your life, my life of faith, are so closely intertwined that one cannot grow without the other. And one cannot die without the other dying. We don't feel the weight of that nearly enough. I can already tell. We have too many who claim to be rugged individual Christians in our church. And why can I say that? Say, you're saying, Corey, you are coming across really judgmental this morning. Why can I say that we have too many rugged individuals in our church? Because if we had one rugged individual Christian in our church, that is too many. And I'm telling you, we have one. Our lives are interconnected. We are responsible for for each other. I believe that in a sense, the Lord is asking New Hope, where is your brother? And we have had the gall to answer him. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes. A thousand times and more. Yes. You are your brother's, your sister's keeper. There is this Greek phrase that pops up nearly 70 times in the New Testament that speaks to this very issue. Ironically, it is pronounced all alone. (laughs) All alone, but it means the total opposite. It means one another, one another. About 60 times in the New Testament text, when all alone is used, it involves some positive or negative command that Jesus and the apostles taught about our responsibility to and for each other, because we are responsible for each other. I told you I would tell you that multiple times. I'm going to read off a bunch this morning, so that you understand just how important and integral these one another passages really are to our lives together. As I read them, you probably won't be able to read them on the screen because I've had to shrink them down because there are so many of them. But as I read them, I want you, I want you to do the soul searching, asking, am I obeying God's word and how I live my life One with another. Are you ready? Be at peace one with another. Do not grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another. Before beginning the Lord's Supper, don't bite, devour and consume one another. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one, one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Seek good for one another. Don't complain against one another. Confess sins to one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Tolerate one another in love, greet one another, be devoted to one another, give preference to one another in honor, regard one another as more important than yourselves, wash one another's feet, be of the same mind as one another, be subjected to one another. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. Do not judge one another. Husbands and wives, do not deprive one another of physical intimacy. Bear one another's burdens. Speak truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Comfort one another with the resurrection. Encourage and build up one another. Pray for one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Be hospitable to love one another. One another, all alone, one another. These one another verses can be uncomfortable, can't they? They get into the nitty gritty of everyday life. It, it gets as specific as comfort one another with the hope of the resurrection. And it goes holistic as Give preference to one another. And let somebody park closer than you. Give someone a little more room on the pew. Or go over to them and give them a hug. Give preference to one another. They get personal, don't they? Talking about a husband and wife's physical intimacy, that's personal. But even more uncomfortable than that, we are commanded to confess our faults. Our sins to one another. So, how'd you do? Of the 35 that I read, there are more, by the way. Do you feel like you consistently minister to one another in our congregation in these ways? When was the last time you washed one another's feet or forgave? one another's fault, or subjected yourself to one another, or prayed for one another, or stirred up one another to do good deeds it's uncomfortable when we start talking like this because it brings a level of performance and critique that we traditionally try and stay away from not wanting to fall into the trap of legalism i i'm not a legalistic christian i'm not interested in a checklist of one another's obeying?" hear me as a recovering legalist myself i have learned a lot about legalism and one thing That legalism does not involve is obedience to God. Legalism always has to do with arrogance, not obedience. If you think that your disobedience to God's word is proof that I'm not a legalist, I don't even understand your basis for Christianity. If you can say, look, I sinned in all these different ways, so I'm not a legalist Christian at all. Friend, that is heartbreaking. That's not anything to flaunt, that you have been disobeying the words of God. God, help us. If we cannot agree that the Lord expects and commands certain things of those who claim his name, then I'm going to be preaching uphill, not just today, but for the next several weeks and quite honestly, the rest of my life at New Hope Church, because he does expect Command, demand obedience from those who claim his name. And much of what Scripture teaches involves living with one another in a church community. All of that is just one big introduction to get us to Romans chapter 12. You're like, what? (laughs) Paul is writing to the local church in Rome. Perhaps it's one of the most important doctrinal theses of history. He explains sin and salvation and grace and sanctification. When I grow up, I want to preach through the book of Romans. I say that often. It's the pinnacle for me. It's so very important. But at the very heart of this theological treatise, Paul has a lot to say about the church and your relationship to the church. Another. Paul recalls an image that he and the other apostles often use in describing the church. He calls us the body of Christ. Jesus, not living here on the earth physically as he did for those 33 and a half years, he left us his church to be his hands, his feet, his heart for the world. We are so familiar with this concept that it has worked its way into every echelon of our faith. Every single one. You'll hear it as a key point in most discipleship development programs. Find your place in the body of Christ. Where are you gifted to serve? What body part in the church are you? That kind of stuff. It is woven into a lot of our music, newer and older. I mean, I can just hear Mark Hall singing in his signature raspy voice, if we are the body, why aren't his hands reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? That was my rock version. But it goes so much older than that. Recently, I came across a Chinese hymn. Not that old, it's from the early 1900s, late 1800s. It's written by a man named Witness Lee. I love that name, he chose that Christian name, Witness Lee. And it's sung to the tune of the well-known hymn, The Church's One Foundation. Y'all are gonna have to help me this morning, okay? Do we need to stand to sing? I told the choir, y'all need to help me because we're going to sing this song in just a moment. And one of the smart Alex in there said, are we going to sing it in Chinese? No, we're not going to sing it in Chinese. <laughs> it's been translated into English. Stand with me as we sing. The church is Christ's own body. <clears throat> the church is Christ's own body. The Father's dwelling place. The gathering of called ones God blended with man's race Elect before creation Redeemed by Calvary's death Her character and standing of heaven not of earth one body universal one body universal one in each place expressed locality of dwelling her only ground possessed. Administration local, Each answering to the Lord. Communion universal, Upheld in one One more verse. Her local gatherings model the New Jerusalem. Its aspects and its details must show in all of them. Christ is the lamp that shineth with God within the light. They are the lamp stands, bearing His glorious image bright. Let to sing a new song a cappella. You may be seated. There are seven... Verses total, so you're welcome that we only sang three. Do you hear what we just sang? Universal and local. We are familiar with this type of imagery. That we are members of the body of Christ. And it's comforting, isn't it? To think, I have a place in Christ. I have a place. Who did formerly not have a place, I now have a place in Christ. Less often, however, do we underline the fact in Scripture that says that we are members of one another. What exactly does that mean? To be members one of another. Well, based upon the text, it means equality, accountability, responsibility. Equality. Look at verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Hear me. The Bible never condones a hierarchy in the church we have superimposed corporate structures on the church of god and it is nowhere seen in the bible never in fact i think we have done the church of the almighty living god a great disservice in trying to make it out something that it is not hear me i I, probably maybe to an unhealthy degree but too bad whatever i cringe every year when I have to file for the church a 501c3 stuff with the state claiming that I'm the CEO of this religious institution. I know that's just necessary paperwork, but I still hate signing my name to it. We do not have a president nor a chief executive amongst us. It's not me. It's not you. There is no such hierarchy, corporate structure in the body of the living God. In fact, every single time that any title is ever used in the New Testament to describe any kind of structure, it always involves service. Pastor might sound good. all it means is under shepherd, the dude who chases sheep all day pastor deacon it means a servant it means a table waiter someone who gives you food that's what deacon means apostle we don't use apostle much in our church but apostle all that means is sent one messenger boy these are not grand titles that we have concocted in our minds. If you've come to the church looking for prominence and prestige, you should have come to the wrong place. We are all doulas. We are all slaves. Every one of us. Slaves of Christ and to each other, Paul says. He say, yeah, but Corey, we all know that if certain people don't show up on a Sunday morning, then we're all in a bind than if others don't. Some people just show up. Well, I get that. I understand in a practical sense what you're saying. When certain musicians or technicians or teachers aren't here, we all feel that a certain degree more. But I don't know if that's not an indictment on us and our trying to make the church look more corporate than it was ever designed to be. The fact of the matter is that the congregation ought to feel your absence on the pew as equally as it feels my absence in the pulpit. One of my friends, fairly new to our church, commented recently that growing up in a little different tradition of Christianity, he was used to having to call the pastor of the church a certain title. He said, here, they call you brother, brother. Still trying to get my head around that one. Brother, members of one another, it means equality. So do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. I love that that's Paul's level. Just don't think of yourself more than you ought to think of yourself. It speaks to equality. It speaks to accountability. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them use them every single christian without exception has particular spiritual gifts which are necessary and needed in the local church i'm going to say that again because i don't think we heard it every single christian Without exception, has particular spiritual gifts which are necessary and needed in the local church. These spiritual gifts have been bought at great expense by Christ Himself when He set at liberty the captives, and they are given and empowered by the Holy Spirit who is indwelling each and every singular Christian. So to say that you don't have a spiritual gift is tantamount to saying that the Spirit has not taken up residence in you you have a spiritual gift and those gifts they need to be identified oftentimes they need to be honed but they are present in the life of every believer Paul says use them use them Paul doesn't give a complete list here. Actually, there is not one single place in the Bible where there is a complete list of spiritual gifts. Instead, he deals with how we ought to minister these gifts. Namely, that we all ought to live them out with grace. Grace. He says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Let grace be sprinkled in your proclaiming truth. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. As you're serving someone else this week, pour the grace on. He who teaches, you just came from teaching your Sunday school class, or you're gearing up to teach your Awana class this Wednesday night, which is starting back again. Make sure that you teach before those kids with grace. He who exhorts, just the everyday average encouraging, you make sure that you lavish. That person on the pew next to you with grace. He who gives, as you put that offering in the drop box, or if you give on live, you give with liberality. Graciously keep it on. He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I don't want to reduce those three verses down too much, but essentially Paul is saying here: whatever your spiritual giftedness really is, use it. Do it. Do something. Christ died, rose, and set captivity captive to to give you a gift. And we sit on a pew, not using it. We are accountable to each other. If you do not serve me using your spiritual gift, then I hurt And if I do not serve you using my spiritual gift, then you hurt. You say, oh, I'm not affected by you. No, you are. And I can all day long say, oh, I'm not affected by that person. People are going to be people. I'm affected by you. I need you. At very least, your spiritual growth is stunted because we all grow together or none of us really grow. We are accountable to each other to serve each other i know my time is short it talks about responsibility similar to accountability we are each responsible for one another this i think gets to the very heart of the one another passages of the bible there is something in the way that paul expresses it in verse 5 isn't there when he says so we being many are one body in christ And then he says, individually, members of one another. Individually, separately, you're members of one another. He both deals with the individual aspect of Christian life and the communal aspect of Christian life. Each of us belongs to the other. Did you hear what I just said? You belong to another. Belong to another. Paul really gets into the nuts and bolts of this in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul is detailing our life together as a church, and he makes a bold claim, a bold claim. He says, you are not your own. He actually asks in such a way, don't you know (laughs) that you are not your own? This is Christianity 101, Paul says. You're not your own. You don't call the shots. You're Christ's. And Christ has given you to one another. You are not your own. He writes that in reference to sins that, we are, that are found among the body of Corinthian Christians. They had fallen into the trap of thinking that they're individuals, and therefore, each one could do what she wanted to do without it affecting the other. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. You Hope, we are responsible to and for each other. Each of our sanctification is dependent upon the others. If you think that I am overstating that just for emphasis or exaggerating it so that I can come back and make a smaller claim, you are not hearing me correctly. My sanctification, my growing in Christ is tied to your growing in Christ. And your growth in Christ is very closely tied to my sanctification. I'm not overstating or exaggerating. I think that that is taught from cover to cover in the bible starting in genesis 2 when adam and eve are given to each other to help each other spiritually and then straight to revelation 22 where he has gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation a people for himself who are ministering and serving each other and thereby serving this has universal and local applications. Over the next several weeks, I am going to really tease out the local applications of one another, what it means for us here at New Hope Church. But today I want to end on a universal application. <coughs> Nick Ripkin is the—he's not the author's real name. He, he works often deeply embedded with within the persecuted church abroad, so we don't know his actual name. But a few years ago, Ripken wrote a powerful book entitled The Insanity of God. I cannot, cannot recommend it to you enough. He details how many of our brothers and sisters are facing persecution in the broader world. In this particular instance, Ripken has gone into China where he will both teach and interview house church leaders for about a week. He has endured an 18-hour van ride in which he had to lay down on the floorboard for the vast majority of the drive so as not to draw attention to his traveling companions since he was the lone foreigner in the group. The three men, his traveling companions, who have been tasked with his safety, they have used codes of where and when to meet about a hundred church leaders out in the country so far away from Chinese civilization that they hope to not be found out. Listen what Ripkin says, just reading the book. David Chen, his translator, had told me that this particular house church movement was one of the biggest and most diverse in the entire country. Many of its congregations and their leaders, like those who rode in the van with me, were urban, educated and comparatively sophisticated in the modern ways of the world, or at least in the modern ways of China. At the same time, a significant percentage of, his, of this regional movement had sprung up and spread among people in places so provincial and so remote that much of the 20th century had passed them by. Some of the church leaders from the most rural areas had little knowledge of the outside world. In light of what David had told me, I was somewhat prepared for the curious stares during supper that night, but I was profoundly surprised after supper when I was formally introduced to the group. One of the local pastors raised his hand to ask a question. What he wanted to know was this Do the people in other countries also know about Jesus? Or is he still only known in China? I'd never been asked that question before or even considered that point of view. For several long seconds, I gathered my thoughts trying to figure out where exactly to begin my answer. Then with David interpreting for me, I told the group that millions of Americans and even more people in different countries around the world knew about and followed Jesus. I then told the group that believers in other parts of the world also knew about them, the Chinese believers in house churches. I told them that believers in many parts of the world prayed for them and their churches. Wait, wait, people cried out. They could hardly believe what I was saying. One man responded this way, you mean that people in your country know that we believe in Jesus? Do you mean that they know that some of us are suffering for our faith? Do you mean that they haven't forgotten us and that they pray for us? I assured them, yes. We have always loved you, and we have never forgotten you. For a long time, we have prayed for you. It was a holy moment as these believers realized that they were recognized, remembered, and prayed for by fellow believers around the world. One of the younger women in the group asked, Since Jesus is known in other countries, are the believers there persecuted like we are? I told them about the experience of believers in two very oppressive Islamic countries. The entire gathering of house church leaders in the farmyard became strangely still. Just minutes before, they had been clapping and shouting and asking questions. Now, they were completely silent and still. They sat expressionless. I attempted to enliven the group by sharing about Muslim background believers we were close to people who had exhibited inspiring faith under the most oppressive circumstances, but there was still no movement and no more questions. When I had told a number of such stories, I felt half-dead myself. I lowered my voice. I said to David, that's it, I'm done. I'm drained. I have nothing more to say tonight. I stepped off the little stage in the middle of the compound and headed for the room where I was to sleep at six in the morning. At six in the morning, I was awakened by screaming and shouting outside in the compound. My first thought was that the security police had come. As my eyes adjusted to the daylight, I saw that there was no security police swarming into the compound. What I saw were those Chinese house church leaders and evangelists scattered among the farmyard, either lying or sitting on the ground, crying, screaming, and yelling hysterically, or so it seemed to me, many of them were pulling their hair or clutching at their clothes. I spotted my friend David across the way. I rushed over to him. I demanded to know what in the world is going on. And he told me to be quiet and listen. You know I don't speak a word of Chinese, David. What do you mean just listen? Again, he insisted, just be quiet, Nick. Before I could protest again, he took me by the arm and began to walk me among the people who were crying and screaming. Because I was now silent, I actually began to hear and recognize the name of the two Muslim countries that I had told them about the night before. The names of those countries were being repeated again and again in passionate and anguished prayer. When David stopped and turned to look at me, there were tears streaming down his face. He said, they were so moved by what you shared last night about believers who were truly persecuted, that they have vowed before God that they will get up an hour earlier every morning to pray for those Muslim background believers that you told them about in those two different countries until Jesus is known throughout their countries. In that instant, Ripken writes, I could see why the number of Chinese believers had gone from a few hundred thousand to perhaps hundreds of millions. If you are wondering what it means to be a member one with another, that is it. This is the body of Christ you have a place in it bought by the blood of Jesus himself giving you a gift to serve in and among the Christians here at this local church use Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lacking in difference and diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, bless those who persecute you. Bless Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I have gotten a lot, a lot of people. Asking me, why don't we do altar calls anymore? Why don't you ever have people come down to the front? What's, what are you doing? Why aren't you sealing the deal? Why aren't you asking people to come down and commit? So here it is. I want you to come down to the front and I want you to pray that the Lord will make us one another this year as never before, that we give more than we ever gave, that we love and are hospitable to each other in ways that are so uncomfortable, it doesn't look like Southern hospitality, it looks like Jesus hospitality. I want us to extend ourselves so that the gospel goes from this pulpit and these classrooms to those streets to that new housing development. The Lord is sending people to this community. God, help us if we are not members one of another enough to do what He has called us to do. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.